Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Well, hello and welcome. It's great to have you with me for another week. I'm Aaron Noon and this is the V8 Sleuth Podcast, polished by Bowden's own premium car care, available at Repco in Australia and New Zealand, as well as a range of other auto stores. Now, this half of the pod is part two of my chat with the one, the only, Gary Wilkinson. And on this part, we talk about a wide range of topics. So, let's not muck around. Let's just get straight into it. I'm not even going to tell you what's on this pod. We'll just get straight into it so you can find out for yourself. This is Wilco on the V8 Sleuth Podcast, polished by Bowden's own premium car care. We talk in a, a couple of those topics that we've already covered off and Mike Raymond pops up in in so many of them. He was kind of a – because he was a little bit before my time but I was lucky enough to do some things with him in the – you know, when we did the Shannon's yes. Legend series that you did with us yeah. and um, we did some of that Muscle Car Master stuff. It was a great thrill for me to, to do that with you guys. I always had the impression that the viewer didn't quite understand because they saw him so much, they heard him so much – but unless they saw behind the scenes, they didn't actually probably understand that even during races, and, and I can only say this because I've seen the off-air tapes, mm. he would be directing from the commentary chair of yeah. what to do next and where to go and how and why, not just calling the car race, which is quite mind-blowing to be able to do all of that. He was across everything. He had his finger on the pulse with everything. I knew Mike before I ever met him. When I was at 2UE, we used to have a five-minute segment or a segment at five minutes to nine on a Saturday and Sunday morning that ran for three and a half minutes prior to the nine o'clock news. What's on in Sydney today? And we just do a little roundup of different things of interest. But certain people cottoned onto that quickly. And Mike Raymond, who was the publicity man for Sydney Showground Speedway, was one of them. And every Saturday morning, at about as soon as I get off air after the eight o'clock news, five minutes past eight, the phone would ring, and it would be either Harry Miller or Mike Raymond. Harry Miller promoted everything, and Mike Raymond, uh, Sydney Showground Speedway, looking for a plug. And so, <laughs> so when I when I went to Amaru for the first time and found out I was going to be working with Mike Raymond, it was a pleasure to meet the guy. But he was. Extremely intelligent man and an excellent, outstanding producer. We'd get to race meetings with no idea what we were going to be doing, although sometimes a day or two beforehand he'd call me up or I'd bump into him in the corridor and he'd say, listen, we'll go to the opener for – what do you think about Could you? And we'd discuss it and we'd make a decision. But apart from that, nothing. And he'd get on the plane and we'd fly to wherever we were going or drive to wherever we were going. And he would just produce this out of his briefcase. 
He'd open up the briefcase and there'd be pages and pages of notes and ideas for stories and who to interview and who was going to do what, what was Crompton, what he wanted Crompton to do, what he wanted me to do, what he wanted Mark Osler to do, uh, and which drivers and and storylines and the whole thing. It just, psh, there it was, magically out of his briefcase. <laughs> um, and you're right, during the telecast, we used to have a, and it's an ongoing thing in television, between commentators and directors. Directors object strenuously to commentators directing the telecast. Talk about what's on the screen and nothing else. Well, no, you can't do that because we have peripheral vision. Mm. I mean, in these days when you're commentating on what you can see on the screen because you can't, you're not at the event, yeah, that's limiting, but that's that's all you can see, so that's all you can talk about. But when you're sitting there and regardless of what is on the screen at the moment, you can see there that, you know, there's a fire billowing out the rear window of a car or the driver's bailed out or it's rolled over the you you have to react. That's that's live television. Mm, mm. Uh, and there were ongoing battles between Mike and the director and quite often me and the director over over but nobody was going to buck Mike if Mike said that that's what happened. That was it. Yeah. Yeah. He had this the show because of that promoter, you know, the promoter that's ringing you at the radio station looking for a plug. And just as we're still talking here about the the openers that you did, people still talk about the nicknames, about Tricky Dicky and Perfect Pete, <laughs> yeah. Gentleman Jim and yeah, the Smiling George, Assassin. The, the, yeah, yeah, the Babyface Assassin. Babyface Assassin, um, yeah. No Baloney Tony. You know, there's, yeah, a, there's yeah. a list a mile long. And, it, and for its time it worked. It would it, I don't think it works now but because there's that era that it was – it's left such an impression on people and he's – I think he's um, – for our listeners who listen to this podcast, for the people who follow the sport now – who might not have been in the sport or close to the sport at the time, he was the guy on the telly, but he was so much more yes. than that, yeah. massively more. Yeah. Yeah. He brought a lot of Americanism, if that's the right, if there's such a word, to the to the coverage. There's no doubt about that. He he was a very, very frequent visitor mm. and an honoured guest at many of the big events at Daytona and elsewhere. In the US, and that's how we ended up with Chris Oconomaki for a few years, uh, and so on. Um, but he brought a lot of that hype, that pizzazz to the telecast that that Evan Green had <laughs> difficulty dealing with, but which eventually, well, I shouldn't say eventually, but which quickly won over the viewing public and won over a broader audience than motorsport had previously had. That combined with colour television, race cam, which was a total – well, race cam and colour uh, tele, television and race cam followed each other pretty quickly. Uh, that was just a whole revolution, not only in television but particularly in motorsport. That technology for which Jeff Healy gets a lot of the credit, but it was Jeff Healy's brainstorm and Jeff Healy – well, Channel 7's money, uh, which Ted Thomas generally 
turned a little blind eye to. As Jeff kept a slush fund somewhere for requirements for any days. he manoeuvred money within the engineering budget to make sure that race, the development of race cam happened. Um, It had never been done successfully before. Uh, The French, there was a French company, Thompson, I think it was Thompson, my French company was, yeah, um, had tried it in Formula One with a spectacular lack of success for a couple of years uh, in the mid-70s. Never worked. Somebody at Bathurst tried it years ago and they had a video camera or film camera, not actually, I think it was only like 60 seconds of footage at a time they could... And it wasn't being beamed out. No, no, it was never being beamed out. It was, it was, it was, it was film. It was filmed and then cut and edited into uh, video coverage later. Um, But until that advent of radio, it it revolutionised not only Bathurst, but went on to revolutionise sports coverage Mm. worldwide. It was huge. Yeah. We take it for granted now. Every car's got a camera in it or multiple yeah. cameras. Every drone's got a camera yeah, in it. Now. Yeah, no, they're no. everywhere. Yeah. Like you, but back at the time when they bolted that one into Williamson's car and then Dick Johnson started talking on it and all the things that led from that, well, game changer, because it, it brought the viewer, it, it got, you know, there was Mike and yourself and later on Neil, but it, it connected the viewer to the people but then also the people in the cars because you got to go in the car. Correct. You you went somewhere where you'd never been before. And it's a shame it doesn't still happen. Um, But, you know, there are valid reasons, I Mm. guess, Mm. uh, for that. But it was offered to other drivers before Peter Williamson and they all looked at the hardware (laughs) Right, and the weight well, it was of it. Like bolting another person. Oh into my your god! Car. It was well. It was. It yeah. was the equivalent of another person in the car. I mean, the camera was sizable, and the framework, and God knows what else. The transmission gear and all that stuff added at least seventy or eighty kilos, and they weren't having any of that. But as I said before, Willow was alert to commercial opportunities, and uh, it was never intended. On the day, or the day before, it was never intended to have any audio. Engineering could talk to Willow, and Willow could talk to engineering, but not on air. That was not on air. Back channel chat. Yeah. But on the Saturday, while they were testing it all out to make sure it all worked, Jeff Healy said, "Hang on a minute." He said, "Can we put that to air?" The engineering guy said, "Oh, ask the audio guy." The audio guy said, "Well, no reason why we can't." Well, you beauty, let's do it. Even better. And so that was a revolution. And then, as you said, Dick Johnson and other people followed <laughs> with, with varying degrees of success. Alan Grice, who denies to this day that it happened, had a camera in his car, and I don't ask me what year it was, 84, uh, somewhere in 84. It wasn't the year he won the race, 86. Might have been the year before. 84 or 85, I guess camera in Grice's car, but he was very, uh, he was a very nervous and very reluctant commentator. Um, and we crossed to him or tried to cross to him without, with limited success, but without success, at some point in the race. And he came down, Conrod, and along the starting grid and somebody, and I, I got, from memory, I, I 
I don't know why. I something tells me it was a Japanese driver. I don't know why. But another driver tried to cut inside him as he came to the corner at the end of uh, the main straight. And the only audio that escaped from Grice was, fuck off! <laughs> and I jumped in and I said, Alan Grice advising that other driver there to back off. <laughs> we'll go with the broom out trying to, <laughs> trying to clean it up. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, oh, they, look, all those guys made a great contribution and other people who who never had the opportunity um, Graham Moore Johnny Smith Bob Holden Bob Jane Larry Larry Perkins to some degree um, but all of those guys in their own way contributed mm. to the success the success of, of uh, television. Coverage made a contribution, made with with background advice and those sorts of things. And as I said, uh, I still see them from time to time, even today. Uh, wouldn't be without them. One of the things that I used to always think, and you can confirm or deny. Don't worry, you're not going to jail for this. <laughs> uh, did when it came time every year for Bathurst was. The podium presentation, the short straw that someone drew every year, more often you than anyone else, was that the bit that no one wanted to do? Because in those days the crowds could get a little bit unruly and it was a bit unsavoury on occasion. Mike just shrugged his shoulders and looked at me and said, off you go, Wilco. <laughs> so no no, shor- no straws were, were no drawn. Shor- it was no just, straws you're were drawn. You're on. Uh, uh, and the worst case was, I can't remember whether it was 90, it was one of the... Nissan GTR years. Oh, the, the one where they no, year all a pack of... No, I think it was the year before. Okay, there was two years in a row, 91 yeah. and 92. Yeah, yeah. 92 was your all a pack of bastards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you cleaned it up there. I think yeah. it was assholes, but you know, <laughs> Jimmy yeah. gave it to them all. Um, oh, was the year before the year that Darren Hinch was on the podium? That's the one. Is that is that what you're thinking? Yeah. So, so <laughs> executives, who shall remain nameless at Channel 7, were big on cross-promotion. Hasn't changed. Hasn't no, changed. I know, I know. And they wanted Hinch involved in the Bathurst coverage. And Mike looked at me and rolled his eyes and said, oh, leave it to me. So we get up there and uh, Hinch is mooching around and Mike got him uh, up to the commentary box for 15 minutes and then edged him out again. Tick the uh, box, basically. Yeah, just yeah. tick the box. But anyway, somebody rang up and wanted more of Hinch. And wanted From him the in- network, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. And wanted him involved in the presentation. So Mike said, right, we'll go off you go. He said, round up, Darren. And uh, Well, it was the first GTR year and the fans were ropeable about this turbocharged monstrosity. And they are pelting full and half full beer cans. And Hinch was the main <laughs> target. You reckon they were throwing them at him, not at Scaife or Richards? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I copped one right in the shoulder and bloody hell it hurt. Um, but, yeah, no, Darren um, uh, didn't make a 
um, a great contribution to the telecast, apart from being a target on the thing. But those years were difficult because, you know, sometimes the, well, the crowds were, didn't matter who won, the opposition were very vociferous um, and agitated and angry sometimes, um, especially the <laughs> the following year. Is it your most memorable podium? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. Those two back-to-back. <laughs> yeah, they, they gave you a good couple in a row, didn't they? Yeah. Um, did, did you get a – could you get a sense before you went out there to do those podiums that there's going to be a bit of grief here or oh, was it a surprise to you every no, time? No, no, no. Well, the intensity was – you always underestimated the intensity but you always knew that, that it, there was – Going to be something, yeah. No, but that was part and parcel of the part and parcel of the brief, you know. Mm. And mm. and you either you either put your hand up for it or you don't. Um, or if Mike says do or it. Or Mike pushes you, you off to do it. <laughs> or if Mike puts your hand up for it. Do it. Hang on a minute, what? <laughs> Every lap in under a minute. Every move made to matter. Every decision impacting the outcome of the race. Supercars in Perth. Every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint. May 17 to 19. Book now at Ticketek. Supercars. Unforgettable. One of the things I was thinking when I was driving out to see you here. And quite, there's two things that I reckon is in my time doing television that I and my time was very brief. But two things I always get asked about: one, how do you not swear? And two, do you plan anything? Well, you know, some some commentators have lines that they've got ready in case this happens. So when it happens, bang, there's the line. <laughs> uh, I could never do it. I, it didn't work for me. But and swearing, like you know, if you don't think you're going to do it, you don't do it. But they're the two most common. Questions I would ever get asked. Are there any times where either of those two things tripped you over? Uh, only ever happened to me once in radio many years ago, and I—I I was a general duties announcer and newsreader, and for want of a better word, disc jockey. God forbid. Um, and I pushed the wrong. I introduced whatever it was I was introducing and pushed the wrong fader. And I very quickly had to pull that one back and flip another one up. And in the interim, I just hadn't switched the microphone. I, I said, you bastard. And that went to air in the very... Um, Which these days is... Nothing. That's nothing. But no, back then... But this was in something. the Islamic Sultanate of Brunei. Oh, right, you're back there. <laughs> oh, we're not even in Australia for this. No, oh, no, oh, no. Right. Um, uh so I think 85% of the audience didn't understand what I've said anyway. Um, <laughs> but was there someone And the you? rest scratched their head and said, did he? Did, Is that, did I really hear that? Um, I just denied it. Uh, people, But that happens quite a lot. And people, look, people hear things that you didn't say. Yeah, that's true. Um, they read things that you didn't write as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I've had I've had phone calls and letters from people um, criticizing or abusing me for things that I never ever said. Mm. Uh, away from motorsport, um, with news in particular, 
are people out there, I don't know what they do or what their problem is or what their thinking is, but I used to get phone calls and letters when I was reading the news from one woman in particular who was badly disturbed and she used to imagine things that I'd said uh, and and ring up in anguish and in... Uh, and finally I just had to burn them and I just stopped opening them um, because it was just doing my head in. Mm, mm. This woman was tortured by things that she thought I was re- reading in the news that... that <laughs> just were, yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, it's just all part and parcel of uh, experience of life. Aren't yeah, uh, no, totally, totally. Um, we talked a bit of Mike. We probably can't do a podcast without mentioning Mulray. <laughs> Doug <laughs> Mulray, the late Doug Mulray, passed away earlier this year, twenty twenty three. Was injected into the coverage. It was huge on Triple M in Sydney. Crompton used to do stuff with him back in the day. There's still lines that he lobbed that. If you lob those in 2023, you're off the air straight away. He skirted. He was, wow, some of that stuff was. Well, Kerry Packer had no hesitation. Well, he yanked him, didn't he? (laughs) Didn't get to commercial number two on that show, I think. Oh, dear me. Look, he was a unique talent and he dared to say things that nobody else would even think of uttering in front of a microphone. Um, But he laughed at the same time Mm. and and. Yes, there were people who took offence, but there was a broad spectrum of people who their initial reaction might have been offence, but then they laughed as well. (laughs) Uh, And so because they were laughing, they couldn't reasonably take offence. And Mulray was that sort of – and he had huge success with that kind of presentation. It disarmed them. Yes, absolutely. No, look, he was a a larger-than-life character – um, and he did make a unique contribution. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. To the telecast on for a couple of two years or whatever. I think he popped it was. up on multiple occasions over the two or three journey. years over yeah, the over the time. More, but, yeah. but it was not uh, sustainable. I mm. mean, on a long in a long term, it, it was it was interesting. Mm. It added something in the years that that he did it, but over the long term. I don't think it would have been a sustainable uh, no. <laughs> uh, input. Um, no disrespect, but like um, Chris Economaki or one or two of the other um, guests. The Hayes, Neville and Richard from the UK came out quite a bit. With oh, well, Mike. Richard, was, Richard Hayes was sustainable because mm. he, was, um, he was intelligent. He knew his role. Um, he had a slightly more pronounced... Pommy accent than I had, and I don't think I've got a Pommy accent. I mean, I, no. I mean, I think I have reverted to a recognisable Australian accent. Maybe I've managed to knock off the rough edges here and there, um, but no, he was perfectly acceptable. Mark Osler, obviously, good Aussie bloke, um, made his contribution, and uh, and dear old Moff, he was good. Mm. He was good. And if, if it hadn't been for Moff, I could never have survived the, 70, the 97, 98 two-litre disasters at, uh, at, at Bathurst. And uh, as you observed from the outset, they were telecasts I didn't want to do. The first one I did reluctantly 
and then afterwards said, don't ever ask me again because I won't. And then they came back in 98 and insisted that I go. And uh, I had to contact to them. Uh, I, I did go, but that was it. And that was, fortunately, that was it. And so apart from a couple of muscle car masters uh, that I did with you, mm-hmm. uh, I haven't done any motorsport commentary since and the reason that I balked after I think two, maybe three, two or three muscle car masters, I was involved in motorsport because working at Channel or working at network television is like eating in one of those fine dining restaurants that has a set menu. You don't get to choose what you eat. What's on the menu is what's there. You can choose not to eat it, but you're going to starve if you don't. And in television, if you knock back what's on the menu, you're not going to have a job for very long. And so we come back to the old adage, never refuse a combat assignment. And I was involved, I got involved and was involved for 25, a little over 25 years with motorsport because the network had the rights to the coverage. With the advent of Supercar, I was there for the gestation and the birth, virtually, of supercars, but then the rights passed to another network and I was still contracted to Channel 7. So my involvement in motorsport came to Mm. an abrupt end. If I hadn't been contracted to Channel 7, would I have gone to Channel 10? Would Channel 10 have wanted me? Who knows? That's all mm. water under under the bridge. Um, so, so the first 10 years after 98, I did not watch a motor racing telecast. I did not watch Bathurst. Deliberately? Yeah. Um, but then gradually I came back to it and I came back particularly to Bathurst and I, and I, I watch Bathurst religiously. I don't watch supercars religiously. I tune in now and then just to check up on Crompton, see how it's going. Um, but I was involved in motorsport because motorsport was on the menu. Mm, mm. Same with tennis, same with uh, the Olympic Games. The boss rang me up. And said, uh, we'll go. He said, um, could you do the swimming for Moscow? I said, yeah, sure, why not? And he teamed me up with, God forbid, John Devitt, who died last weekend. He did, yeah, I've read that, yeah. Uh, what a wonderful man. I mean, I, he kept me afloat. Literally. <laughs> he That's did. A good swimming line you got there. Yeah. Nice, nice. He kept me afloat. Um, but... I've never been afraid to put my hand up. I've done commentary at the Olympics for archery, for table tennis, for weightlifting, um, tennis, uh, Commonwealth Games, netball, for God's sake, gymnastics, um, opening, closing ceremonies, and you know, but you put your hand up and you take a deep breath and you do your homework. You get, you get the rule book. Whatever the sport is, whatever the event is, you get the rule book and you read it and you read it and you read it so that you understand 
how it all works, and then you get the terminology. You, you just layer it, really, aren't correct, you? Yeah. Correct, correct. Um, you know, a bloke rang me up and he said, uh, mate, what are you doing next month? I said, nothing, why? He said, uh, would you be able to do the Asian Games in Doha? And I said, oh, mate, I don't know. And I said, no, 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 no. Anyway, I thought about it and I spoke to a couple of other people that were going and I said, oh, look, I may as well. i got nothing else on at the time. I rang him back. He said, oh, mate, he said, I wish you'd said that before. He said, look, he said, I've only got one sport left. He said, so I've booked people. He said, uh, could you do the wrestling? And I said, yeah, why not? He said, um, freestyle and Greco-Roman. I was about to say, is it freestyle or Greco-Roman? Both. It's both, okay. I said, oh. He said, oh, no. He said, we've got, we'll have an expert commentator to work with you. So he said, wait a minute. So, okay, I got in a plane, I flew to Doha and I walked into his office and he said, oh, mate, he said, a bit of bad news. He said, our expert, he said, it's pulled out. He said, would you able to handle it on your own? Yeah. <laughs> and I said, yeah, well, I, I can do I can do that. And I did and uh, got away with it. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> at one point in the freestyle wrestling, we got up to about the quarterfinals. And uh, there I am working on my own. And I said, now, ladies and gentlemen, this is the second quarterfinal match, I said, in the 86-kilo division of the freestyle wrestling. I said, and coming to the mat now, I said, we've got the silver medal winner from the previous uh, games, Alexei Krupnyakov from Kazakhstan. Is that is that the guy you're remembering, the exact guy oh, right yeah. now? Or you oh, yeah. No, no, okay. no, Alexei Krupnyakov and his opponent, from Iraq, Fakad Abdul Razak. No, kid you not. I'm not saying that you're kidding me. You would never kid me. And Alexei Krupnyakov was about five foot four tall and five foot four wide. And his opponent was about six foot two and built like a rake. Right? Well, Alexei Krupnyakov has killed him, broken him in half. Right? Well, <laughs> I said, Alexei Krupnyakov, I said, in fine form, the silver medal from the previous games, I said, is going to be a real medal contender, gold medal contender here in Doha. I said, as for his opponent, Fakad Abdul Razak, I think enough said. <laughs> oh, nice. Nice. <laughs> Look, it's been a... It's been... Um, I won't say a wild ride. It's been a roller coaster ride, but it's been enjoyable. And as I said right at the outset, in the 63 coming up 64 years, aside from all those other things, the eight Olympic Games and the four or five or six, whatever it is, Commonwealth Games and World Championships, water polo, I've done mm. that as well, World Championship for water polo, that was a, that was a trial. Um the 25 years of motorsport provided the most memories, the most fun, the most excitement, and in, in some respects, not quite the greatest challenges, but, but among the greatest uh, uh, challenges. I wouldn't have missed it for quids.
Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out. I mean, the period that you were doing it was, you know, I think it's going to be talked about for a long time as being a golden era of the 70s, 80s, early 90s. And one of the guys we haven't mentioned, and I wanted to weave him into this somehow because he's, he's hard not to mention, is Brock. Tell me about your experiences with Brock. I remember you saying, and I think this might have been after he passed when there was a, a TV special or two, that when you went down to go and have a chat, you needed a 30-second grab, bang. Yeah. You just absolutely would nail what you know. And if there's any – and there are young race drivers listening to this, Wilco, who quite often I hear from who, who want to know, oh, how do I do this and how do I do the media and how do I – well, here's a perfect prime lesson and you can tell the story on – he was the consummate. Create what you need. What they you know know what is required by yeah. the journalist, the reporter, the media outlet, because if you give them what they need, yeah. they'll come back. He was the consummate performer, both behind the wheel and behind the microphone or in front of the camera, uh, and a bit like Willow, but in bre- with brevity, <laughs> uh, he knew how to deliver the goods. I've had instances in motorsport where, especially back in the old Amaru days, uh, uh, Mike would say, we'll go pop out and interview the winner. He said, 30-second grab, he said, and then back to me. And so I'd do that and they'd cross the line and I knew who the winner was. That's no problem. And out I'd go and I'd interview the winner and I'm just about to throw back to Mike and the winners edging out of the picture and Ivan Stibbard would push somebody else in that I had no idea who it was. It might have been the second place getter. It might have been the bloke who the spun out on the last or, lap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? yeah it could be right? anyone. And I'm frantically searching for a name. and On not, their race suit? Yeah. Trying to see who it is? And, <laughs> and, some, and so I've had to bluff my way through and say, well, mate, gee, that was un- you were unlucky today. And that always is a good opening line because well, they're always unlucky. <laughs> but... You never had that worry with, with, with Brock. And if Mike said, uh, we need a grab from Brock, he said, uh, no more than 30 seconds or see if you can get a minute and a half out of Brock concerning Eric Dowker <laughs> or, or something, uh, you knew that's what you'd get. Um, and I'd say to Brock, we need a grab for the story or we need a short grab for the news tonight about... X, he'd say, give me a minute, and he'd have a sip of his tea, and then he'd say, righto, righto. Now, what was it you wanted to know? I said, what about X, Y, Z? Aha, yes, well, X, Y, Z, that is a problem, but we've been working on it overnight, and uh, I think we've found the answer. We'll know in qualifying tomorrow morning, but I'm confident. End, done, bang. That's it. Hmm. That's it. All you need, all you want. And if you wanted more... You just had to tell him beforehand. And he'd engineer it and tailor it and he'd always get Bridgestone or whatever else in there there somewhere. Yeah, yeah, that's a skill too. (laughs) Moffat was very good at that as well. See, a lot of those guys, and I understand where they're coming from, as soon as they get behind the microphone, 
sponsors' names just tumble out and nothing else. Because they want to justify the money that they're getting off. And I understand all that. But Brock, Moffat, Dick, Dick was a bit more blatant, uh, knew how to work it into the conversation. Sonova's vitamins, Moffat. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Just they gave you the guts of what you wanted. It was weaved in the editorial. They, they just yeah. managed to weave it in there. They didn't just hit you over the head mm. with a freaking Sponsor hammer. list, bang. Yeah, yeah. Boom. No, look, Brock was great value until – and he was great value even then um, – who knows what goes on in people's minds? He he became obsessed. Um, he, he became blind in the, in his belief in his own genius, for want of a better word, not in his driving ability, mm. but the polarizer and all of that stuff, and dismantled a really successful business. Destroyed it, and yeah. and but in the face of opposition and in the face of criticism, just became more obstinate and more determined to to crash through, and he never did crash mm. through in that. Oh, I shouldn't have used the word, but in uh, that term, in, in, that, in, that, stuff, in that sense, yeah. Um, he was he was another one who who was a contributor, and I should mention um, Bev Brock. Christine Gibson, uh, Gloria Gardner, Jill Johnson, um, Christine Grice. There's a key to all of these people and if you don't manage to get in the door first, front door first, you go to the wife or partner or secretary and you say, look, I've been trying to talk to Peter about X, Y, Z, A, B, C. Do you know what's going on? Or, you know, ask Peter or tell Peter or tell... Dick, or uh, I'd like to have a word with him when he's got a spare moment. And it's amazing what you can find out and how you can mm. make your way forward in those circumstances. And all of those ladies were were wonderful in their way. How the whole, and I'm, I have to presume that the listeners to this podcast will know something about the background and the history. How the whole Eric Dowker thing came about and evolved is still a mystery, within a mystery, within a, right? And I can't, I don't know, I can't explain it. Um, But Peter swallowed it hook, line and sinker and that was part and parcel of his downfall in, in, in some terms. And yet... The legend is bigger. Well, it was the, the Messiah ever. rose again, didn't he? He ended up back with Holden and he yes. was competitive again. And, yeah. you know, doors that were shut to other people forever in such situations reopened. Yes. Because he just had this charisma. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it was that yeah. um, he was X a, factor, I think they call it these days, don't they? A very disarming. If <laughs> I've had it happen to me, you, you walk up to Brock in the pits or in the garage to try and get something and he's surrounded by four or five crew he's surrounded by half a dozen journos and he's surrounded by depending on whether he's in the pit or in the in the paddock 
20, 30, 40 Brock fans. And it doesn't matter who asks the question, whether it's me or Journo A or Journo B or Fred Nurk from Dapto. Yeah. He's talking to you. To you. And I know it because he did it to me when I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah, he, he didn't feel like he he wasn't talking to near you. He was talking to that's you. That's correct. That's correct. And I learned a lesson from from Brock in that regard that I utilised later on in life. Frank Gardner, uh, when he was running the BMW school just up across the border in Queensland, uh, asked me if I would give some media backgrounding to his crew and drivers. And so, and especially about on camera or public performance, speaking and addressing people. I said, look, it doesn't matter whether you're talking to me or whether you're talking to a room full of, say, 60 people or a crowd at the track of 40 people. I said, when you stand up, I said, just take a quick glance. I said, and pick out three or four people, him in the blue shirt, the girl with the orange hair, the old bloke over here with the beard, and this young fellow here with has got the T-shirt on. I said, because, I said, if you address each of those people for X amount of time and change and swap there, I said, the people sitting in front, behind, on either side and two more on either they all think you're looking and talking to them. I said, so if you speak to those four people, you're actually talking to 60 people without realising it and they all think that you are giving them individually your undivided attention and they'll walk away saying, Peter Brock, Tony Longhurst, whoever it was, uh, told me. Mm. And that's the, that was the essence of Brock, he was the master of of the art. He found himself tied in that, and we did cover it very briefly before I wanted to double circle back. When the, the great V8 Bathurst fight happened, we had two Bathurst for a couple of years, he was on the Channel 7 side because he was actually Channel 7 guy yeah. at the time. But driving for HRT, who by that stage was still with V8s and that was on 10, yeah. and so he wanted to do the two-litre race, 7 yeah. wanted him to do the two-litre race in the end. He did it despite a lot of political pressure. But if we backtrack a little bit here and stitch together a couple of the topics that we've discussed, remember that Mike was off the scene by then. He had a heart attack in late 95, I think it was, yeah. and then he was gone. They And I spoke to Andy Raymond about this on the pod a couple of years ago and he said he was in hospital when he got the call, sorry, mate, you're, you're gone ski, yeah. you're out. So then we had that situation in 96 where I think it was yourself and Alan Moffat and Mark Osler. There was the late nights on the Victorian market, one-hour highlights, all that stuff. The V8 blokes all kind of go, hang on a minute, where the show at Bathurst, Cochrane's on the scene, James Erskine's on the scene. Anyway, end of it all is that 10 end up with the rights, seven have still got a Bathurst. And it's something that I actually, through writing the, the book that I've done this year, as I pondered it more and looked deeper into that whole period of 25 years ago when that stuff was happening, what became really, really clear, and I think you sort of touched on it earlier, the Bathurst 1000 is not owned by 
a club, by a television network, by private equity, by anyone. What is the Bathurst 1000 is determined by the hearts and minds of the people who follow the sport, who listen to this podcast, who watch the broadcasts, who come to the track. The Bathurst 1000 is what they say it is. And, you know, at the time it was different because Seven was saying, we have the Bathurst 1000. <laughs> we have the date, the television broadcaster, the ARDC, yeah. it's 35 years of tradition, which they were quite, quite right to put their flag in the ground on yeah. that element. But Public ra- opinion said otherwise. But public opinion said otherwise. Yeah. The crowds were bigger at the V8s, yeah. the ratings were bigger. Those two leader races were good car races. There oh, was there's no doubt about that. Really but it was not stuff. the real thing, if you pardon the expression. Yeah, yeah. Um, it wasn't Bathurst. No, but Seven wanted, you know, they had a deal with Bathurst, but they didn't want to take the V8s. When, when, when the whole supercar thing came about, uh, Noel Brady and myself went to the guy that was running sport at the network that time, Alan Bateman, and said, look, there's a big problem here. There's a lot of dissatisfaction in the ranks. There's a lot of rumbling going on. This is happening. And if you don't watch, if we don't watch ourselves, this is all going to fall apart. Uh, we need to be talking to these integral people. Uh, otherwise, we're going to lose it. He said, well, that's not happening. Leave it to me. Um, he said, I'll talk to the key players Organise it for me. Who are they? One, two, three. Told him. He said, okay, I'll take care of it. Don't worry. He's the boss. He's the executive. Uh, And made appointments for three people to attend a meeting with him at Channel 7 in Sydney on a certain day at a certain time. And those three people got on a plane, flew from Melbourne, got a cab from Sydney Airport to Channel 7 to be there at the appointed time, 10, 30, 11 o'clock in the morning, they walked in and Bateman's secretary said, he's not available. Mm. They said, but, 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 and she said, no, not available. You'll have to ring and make another appointment. They turned around, drove back to Sydney Airport, got on a plane, flew back to Melbourne and rang up James Erskine and company and said, we're with you. Mm. And then when the announcement was made pretty much the next day <laughs> by Channel 10, Bateman said, no, 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 no. No, that's not the deal. You can have the touring car, supercar, whatever you want to call it, but we own Bathurst. And the driver said, well, no, we are Bathurst. Right? So we're going to move. In the initial instance, I think it was the first weekend of November, not the first weekend of October from memory. Uh, but Bateman said, no, 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 we own Bathurst and we'll still have Bathurst. So we Which, had, uh, it was worth a lot of money to them. You know, it, yeah. it brought in a lot of advertising yeah. and big ratings. But he just misread the room entirely and, and just treated them with such disdain uh, in the initial instance that whatever chance, slim chance, that Channel 7 at that time had of holding onto it was gone out the window. Surely that doesn't happen if Mike was still involved. Oh, no. No, well, not. I but don't know. Or was his grip being reduced in the years beforehand? It always felt like that on the outside. Yeah. Because there's always network politics. There's well, always stuff going on. So the, the, the worst time in television is when there's a wholesale management change. And I've, I lived through the first one, two, three, arguably. But the fourth one, 
you, you think, like, I'm a case in point. You think you're travelling. Well, I've been at Seven, Sydney, the network, for 28 years. Um, and at that point, I'd done 35 Australian Opens and Davis Cups and X number of Olympic Games and Commonwealth Games and whatever else and Bathurst's and all of that sort of stuff. I had just come off uh, an Australian Open championship. I hadn't long come off a Commonwealth Games in um, Manchester. It was only two years after a hugely successful Sydney Olympic Games for which I commentated on the gold medal winning equestrian events. I did the opening ceremony. I did the closing ceremony. I remember it well. It's a massive, massive oh, huge. rating success. Yeah. Gone. Oh, Wilco, your contracts are coming up for renewal. We need to have a talk. I said, yeah, okay. I was in Melbourne doing the tennis. I'll be back on Monday morning. Oh, no, mate. Oh, no, you've been working your backside off down there at the, at the tennis. Take a couple of days off. Come in on Wednesday. I said, no, no. I said, I'll be back to do the morning news on Monday. No, mate, mate. No, Wednesday, 10 o'clock Wednesday. I said, oh, okay. So. Did you know something was up? So we're talking 2003 here. 2003. Right? No, I didn't know something was up. Hmm. Um, You're thinking I'm renewal. Thinking, all right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so I turned up for the meeting. I walked in. There were only two people in the room, surprisingly. Uh, the surprise was the head of human resources. Uh, I walked in. Neither of them spoke and they just handed me an envelope. I opened the envelope. That was it. We're not renewing you. This Goodbye. There's a backstory to that, which I can't tell you, hmm. but the reasons why and the manipulations that went on behind the scenes to engineer somebody else into the vacancy left by my departure, but that's, that's you know, neither here nor there. Um, so, yes, I, <laughs> changes of management... Because people come in and they know that the board of directors want action, so they turn everything upside down. Whether it produces Whether good, good results or bad, it's, it's, it's movement, action. Yeah. yeah. Right? Um, and that sometimes gets good people. I mean, <laughs> I've known a lot of good people in television, talented people in television, some of whom are still there but I know an awful lot more that have just vanished off the face. There one day, gone the next. Mm. What happened to him? What happened to her? Where have they gone? Oh, it's a cruel business. Mm. It's a cruel business. Um, and like I said, to have survived in the last, I don't know, 20 years, I've survived working freelance for also <laughs> freelance for Channel 7 included and um, Channel 9 at one or two points and um, Sky, Sky Racing, Sky, yeah. uh, yeah. Sky News at one yep. point yep. Uh, for well, six or seven years. Well, I remember vividly that the day that Brock was killed, you were on Sky. Yes. Yeah, you were, you presented that coverage all the way through and they had 
rolling guests of people on the phone. I remember it vividly. Yes, you, you were you were live on air right through that afternoon. Yeah, yeah correct, mm. correct. And I was at the funeral subsequently, mm. um, and did live cross there for uh, Sky Swell. So I survived for those up until well, if you could call the current commitment surviving. It's just an interest to still be doing some tennis. Um, but yeah, no. So I, and at the time, I had five-year-old twins and a mortgage, substantial. And I thought, holy mother, what am I going to do here? Mm. So fortunately, um, uh, <laughs> but again, everything comes back to what you have to pay to survive. I said to Channel 7 at the time, right, 28 years, Jesus. I said, you must owe me some long service. decent whack of long service. Oh, no, no. No, no, you're a contract employee. I said, yeah, but I'm only on contract because you wanted me to go on contract so I couldn't bugger off on three weeks' notice and go and work somewhere else. And I said, the fact is, I said, I've worked here every day of my life for the last 28 years, sometimes six, sometimes seven days a week, sometimes 10, 12 and 14 hours a day and sometimes for six, seven, eight weeks on end without a day off. I said, so you must owe me long service. Oh, no. There would have been times between one contract expiring and you signing the new one where technically you weren't employed. So, no, you're not entitled to long service leave. So I thought, right now, I said, well, see you in court. But then the only option available to me at the time certainly wasn't Channel 9, certainly wasn't Channel 10 or the ABC, was Sky News of which Channel 7 owned 33 and a third percent. And there was no chance of getting my foot in the door at Sky News uh, if I was in court trying to squeeze long service leave out of them. And so I had to bite the bullet on that and I went to Sky News and I was there for six, seven years or whatever it was. And then they changed their format and went to a lot of editorial type Andrew Bolt type. Mm-hmm. Which uh, they've still gone down that pathway. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. My, Big uh, time. Um, and look, good luck to them for that. And so I could see the writing on the wall. So I made a precautionary phone call to somebody I knew at Sky Racing. And I translated from Sky News <laughs> to Sky Racing while still doing some freelance work for Channel 7 and other people including, uh, well, I, was, I might have been still at Sky for the Doha Olympia. I can't, Doha Asian Gun, I can't remember. Um, so then I, I translated to um, Sky Racing and I was at Sky Racing for 13, 13 and a half years and, and continued even after Channel 7 exited uh, the tennis and the rights went to Channel 9, um, still continued with Tennis Australia as a commentator on their international coverage, world feed coverage. Uh, so you stitch together whatever you need to stitch together to mm. keep batting. Yeah. Know. So do we say you're retired, oh. semi-retired? What, oh. are we, what, are we, what are we, is there a label? What do we, you just, you can pick and choose what you want to do when you want to do it. Look, I'm 95% retired. That's, Simple as that. Look, if something fell into my lap tomorrow, um, I I did put my hand up for the Birmingham. I did I did the Gold Coast Commonwealth Games yeah, a few yeah, years ago. Yeah. Um, world uh, feed coverage 
um, host broadcaster coverage. Um, and I did put my hand up for Birmingham, but it was right in the middle of the COVID thing and travel and other health considerations. Um, and I've got a few of those because I'll be 81 in a couple of weeks. Um, I thought, no, bugger that. It's just not worth the thing. And then I was talking to a colleague of mine and he said, uh, are you going to put your hand up for the Melbourne Commonwealth Games? I said, ah, oh, no. He said, no, mate, come on. He said, do it. He said, you know, he said, you're too good to be sitting on the sidelines. And the next thing I know, Dan has pulled the plug on the <laughs> Melbourne Commonwealth Games. Well, there goes the gig. Uh, yeah. So, well, I, I mean, I'm not saying I would have got a gig. I mean, if yeah. I'd have put my hand up, but possible. But, but uh, look, I don't see anything falling into my lap, quite mm. frankly. Mm. And if I did get a gig at the Australian Open in January, that will be my 48th year of tennis commentary. It will be my 45th Australian Open because I did wow. miss a couple because of other commitments. And if it's my 45th and last, well... It's a good run. That's not it's, a bad run. It's a great night. Yeah. What's your favourite um, – see, because a lot of people are surprised. I have a lot of interest in other sports, mm. not just motorsport, but it's the only thing anybody hears me talk about or write about or sees anything. I love tennis. Mm. I live in Melbourne, so that's yep. that's handy. Love driving past Kuyong, yep. um, the former home. Of, oh, yes. You know, just yeah. The AO has grown just a bit since those oh, days. Oh, God, has it ever. Um, and I'm an Olympics tragic. Nutbag for it, love it, uh-huh. love it. Used to recite all of the host venues of every year, 1896 Athens, 19, yeah, so yeah, so yeah, yeah. and got to work on the Rio coverage back in 2016 from Sydney, not mm-hmm. over in in Rio, which was which was a great thrill. What are some of the the memories of those other sports that? Because one of the things when I was flicking through making some notes before I came to see you was. The day that John McEnroe got defaulted out of the Australian yes, Open, one, one was, of many times he lost his shit and, you know, got, yeah, got I was commentating out. on you the match. You were calling McEnroe yeah. getting turfed. Yeah. No, look, I've been – I've had a box seat at some extraordinary events and that that was one of them. And Max, look, friend is probably an exaggeration, um, but but we've known each other for a long time. And when we see each other, it's good day. How are you? I haven't seen you for a while. Um, he's a misunderstood character. He's a he's a more explosive version of Alan Moffat. <laughs> right? I think it's the first time I've heard McEnroe and Moffat in the same sentence. Well, yeah. well, he's a chronically shy person at heart. Um, extremely talented, uh, and has a very black and white view of right and wrong. And if he thinks he's right and you're wrong, he lets you know it. Mm. No uncertain bloody terms. Ask many an umpire about that. Um, so, yeah, that, look, that was an experience. Um, look, off the top of my head, I, it's hard to recall those. Oh, there's so many. There's, yeah, there's so much kind stuff. Of. So surely the Sydney Olympics is... A, a highlight. Major, major oh, highlight. mate. Uh, no pretense about this. They said, opening ceremony. I said, okay. And you've got to do a lot of homework. And you're trying to guess. You're trying to find out. You're trying to source information about who and what and when and how it's all going to work. And they won't tell you. Or they hedge their bets. And when they have the rehearsal... 
they give you a limited document. And who's they? The the organisers. The, the IOC. Yeah. 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 Sydney Olympic Organising Committee. SOCOG IOC. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's an acronym I haven't heard for a yeah, long time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's a basic, very basic outline and there are gaps in things that they don't want you to know. Uh, surprises. Right, yeah. Right. But, there, but there's a genuine timeline but all the bits are not filled in. Now you go to the rehearsal and you've got this... 14 or 16 page document and I've got a red pen I always use a red pen and when things happen I scribble a little note before and after each segment what happened there what happened there what needs to be said what should I not say but there's all these blanks and so you have to be prepared to, to think on your feet because when you get there on the night, they produce a document that's twice as thick, right, and it's got a lot of language in it that's hard to interpret about lawnmowers and what the f- <laughs> <laughs> Where's this going? Uh, and then you go down the compound and people from Japan come rushing up to you and say, uh, excuse me, what... I don't understand. I said, well, what makes you think I understand? (laughs) But look, this is my best guess, my interpretation of what this should be, what I think this will be all about. Hills, hoists, um, motor mowers, Mm, all that. mm. Fill in all those. Anyway, we get to the main event. Before the main event, they said, okay, we've got all of this and all of that and there's going to be this big, obviously indigenous uh, segment and there'll be an obvious indigenous thread through the whole thing, but there's this specific, right? And uh, we're going to get Ernie Dingo to do it, right? and I'd met Ernie and uh, on several occasions, and uh, we had a get together at Channel Seven the week prior. And he said, uh, "Hey, brother, um, how are we going to handle this?" And I said, "I'll tell you what we're going to do, Ernie." I said, when we get to this, this specific segment, I say, I'm going to say, and now here's Ernie Dingo. I said, it's all yours, brother. Because I, what am I going to say? What am I, I can't miraculously absorb mm. 60,000 years of <laughs> Aboriginal tradition, Aboriginal mm. history, and regurgitate something that makes sense at the very grave risk of putting my big fat foot right in it. So I took the obvious choice and I said nothing. And Ernie carried the next 15 or 20, whatever it was, minutes, I I don't recall off the top of my head now. And then when he finished, he sat back and I took over again and then we got to the athletes coming in and so I was then joined by Bruce and Sandy Roberts, Bruce McAvaney and Sandy Roberts, carried on from there. And it rated... Surprisingly, the closing ceremony rated higher than the opening ceremony, believe it or not. Really? Really? Well, there's a trick to it, though, uh, which I was reminded of in the current discourse about the Matildas and the World Cup. And people talk about this, uh, whether or not they could equal or break the 8.8 million viewers that Cathy Freeman had for the 400 metres. Well, that's a mythical figure. It doesn't exist. Because at that time there were no minute-by-minute 
ratings. ratings. And there was no online... No streaming. There's no, no streaming. streaming. Yeah, no, those, right? those will get thrown in there as well. And in those days, the ratings were taken by session, not by minute. So the session for the opening ceremony for that block rated 3.6 million. But that was metropolitan only. Not regionals. Not regional. So, and I, I say News Corp, but I'm pretty certain it was News Corp, sat down and said, 3.6 million metropolitan only, let's call it 4 million, no minute by minute, it's only block coverage, let's call it 4 million, let's take in regional television, add 10%, double it, add 10%, it makes 8.8 million. And that's the mythical figure, Hmm. 8.8 million. But in real figures, as they were taken on the day, the opening ceremony rated 3.6 million, 3.7, close to 3.7. And the closing ceremony rated 3.9. And Cathy Freeman rated 3.8. But that was for the block. Of which that that was within that. Yeah. Yeah. There was no minute by minute ratings. Mm. Um, you know, I read in the paper today or something that the Channel 7 television coverage reached 18, of the Matildas, reached 18 million people. But that includes streaming services and... It's so segmented now. Yeah, that's right. At all. Whereas back in 2000, it was telly. Yeah. That was it. There yeah. was one avenue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a different world. It's a different uh, world. Look, it's an intriguing... Intriguing business, um, and we could sit here and talk about different aspects of it all day. All I know is that uh, I've had ninety-three coming up, ninety-four um, extraordinary years in the business. And as I said before, motorsport was not the largest single component in that, but it was by far and away. Um, well. <sighs> It was at least as enjoyable as everything else put together and certainly provided uh, more ongoing friends and associates and a hell of a lot more excitement, adventure and fun than all the rest Mm. put together. A couple of quick ones to finish. Some of our listeners have sent a couple of questions in. So it's the National Motor Racing Museum Couch Racer questions from the couch. So... Liam Baker's got a question. What tips have you got for anyone who wants to be a commentator? Maybe just in simple terms. We've kind of covered it a little bit during our chat. Do your homework is clearly... Do Well, look, there's no substitute for knowing something. Look, I know this doesn't help, but there's no substitute for knowing somebody or putting yourself in somebody's face. There's a thing in life called... Windows of opportunity. And your radar has to be on constantly. You've got to be constantly alert because sometimes these things are just on the edge of your peripheral vision. And I don't mean vision in the awareness. in that sense, awareness. Yeah, yeah. I said, it, and it, you can't afford to walk past one of those windows and not look in to see what's happening in there because that might be just what you you want so you've got to be alert to those possibilities you've got to be 
nibbling away at the fringe of whatever it is that you're interested in, whether it's motorsport or any other sport or any other undertaking, you've got to be nibbling away at the fringe and you've got to know who's who, who makes decisions. And you've got to be there. You've got to put your hand up for that combat assignment. When I first came back from Borneo and couldn't get a job because I was too ABC, I eventually heard that there was a job going at 2UE, radio station in Sydney. And the guy that told me about it, I said, oh, what's it for? He said, I don't know. He said, all I know is, he said, they're going to be advertising, he said, in... Um, Friday, in Saturday's uh, Sydney Morning Herald. That was on a Thursday. So I rang up and made an appointment straight away the next day with the general manager. <whistles> Presented myself. How old was I? 20, 21, I guess. I walked in the door and I could tell by the look on his face as soon as I walked in the door that I was a disappointment. And he said, look, he said, uh, thanks for coming. He said, but I, he said, I don't think you understand. He said, uh, we're after an experienced journalist. I said, well, yes. I said, that's why I'm here. Oh, oh. He said, you've, you've got some experience. Well, I wove my two years behind the microphone, two and a half, whatever it was, years in Brunei, I mean, colonial outstation, in the middle of the jungle, well, it wasn't in the middle of the jungle, but you know what I mean. Uh, embroidered and embroidered. <laughs> embroidered. Yeah. Bit of sugar, bit of sauce on top. And he said, oh, oh look, uh, well, he said, look, the final decision's not up to me. He said, uh, he said um, it's up to the news director. He said, I'll take you around and introduce you to him. And he took me around and he introduced me to a man by the name of Don Angel, former war correspondent, World War Two. Um, attached to MacArthur's staff. And he was a lovely man. Oh, I came to know that he was a lovely man. And he sat back with his arms folded and a cigarette smouldering away in the ashtray and he spoke like that all the time. And I embroidered and I embroidered and I embroidered. And in the end he said, look, son, stop. Stop right there, son. He said... You don't have to bullshit me. He said, you do spin a good yarn. He said, I'll tell you what I'll do. He said, I'll put you on on a, on a three-month trial as a cadet journo. How would that be? And I said, okay. And I stayed there 13 and a half years before I then translated to television. But like, you've got to take your chances. You've got to be persistent. You've got to know your subject. Um, You've got to be able to embroider. <laughs> <laughs> it's a skill. It's a skill. Um, funnily enough, we got this question from a lot of people and I know Neil gets this one regularly, but Saren, who's one of our regular listeners, do you still have a Channel 7 red or crimson jacket? I don't think anyone does, do they? No. Um, some years ago, oh, 15 years or more ago, my wife said to me, can't you clear out this? And look, I, I could open the closet now and I've, I've still got a Channel 7 paraphernalia, for want of a better word, uh, jackets and things, but not 
I don't think I've got the blue one still. I know I've got a Nagano Seven Olympics jacket. Um, but at the time, as I said, 15 years ago, I had closets and closets full of stuff. I mean, when I finished work at, well, not at Seven, but at Sky News in particular, that end of that period, sort of we're talking about 2010, somewhere around there, I had 34 or 36 suits in my closet. I had 186 ties in my closet. Because did you have to clothe yourself for those gigs? or I well, thought you would just turn up and wear what they have there and go home. And no, there was a clothing allowance. Right. Um, that I had access to in the good old days. Mm. Um, but mind you, the salary wasn't as big as uh, some of the people I know that I knew then that are still working in television today are rolling in it, mm. God almighty. <laughs> uh, but anyway... Uh, my wife said, you've got to get rid of some of this stuff. And so I went through and I collected all the red and blue jackets and delivered them to Wardrobe at Channel 7. I said, you can probably pick the pockets off or whatever you want to do or reuse them. Or, and I've had calls since from people at Channel 7 asking me, oh, mate, have you still got a red jacket? We need one for this program. I said, no. I said, you've got them. Oh, well, wardrobe say they haven't. I said, well, I don't know what they've done with them, but no. They went back. Yeah. They went back. Uh, David Roberts' question, were you tempted to get back behind the wheel after your Formula V outing at Amaru? <laughs> I did. I did, actually. How did that all come to be? Uh, oh, God knows. I don't know. That was Mike's idea or Mike and a conspiracy between Mike and Ivan Stibbard or something. Um, I did. I got behind the wheel. Oh, God, who was it? Um, oh, my God, I've gone blank. Um, at Winton one year, I got behind the wheel of uh, a Formula Ford, uh, Russell Ingle. Oh really? Yeah, yeah, and he was the he was the gun, <laughs> he was the formula gun at the time. Yeah, Ford yeah. driver. He at was the time. around in the Larco era and yeah, all that. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, after the meeting, he 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 had a practice day at Winton the day after the touring car round, and I stayed back because uh, I'd spoken to him about it and um, had a drive and uh, I don't know after about five or six laps. It was wet, wet as buggery. It had rained all weekend. And uh, I uh, took an excursion off the track and dug the nose into about four foot of mud somewhere on the infield. He wasn't happy. <laughs> Funny that. <laughs> <laughs> I drove Dick, I drove a lap, or two laps, I think, or three laps maybe. I can't remember, of Dick Johnson's Mustang around Lakeside. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah. cool. And, of course, I've done, I can't remember, how many laps with how many different people, Brock, Moffat, Longhurst um, and Dick around Bathurst in the dry, in the passenger seat um, on a practice day up there. Um, but no, no. I saw an interesting article in the paper about what people responded to when they asked to rate themselves as a driver out of ten as in on the road. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the number of people who grossly overestimate. <laughs> uh, and I don't overestimate mine. Um, um, what are you out of ten? Six. On your day okay and yeah, on your day Yeah, I'm okay. Yeah. I'm okay. Um, I just need to watch the speedo a bit closer. 
Life gets away from you. I tend to do. (laughs) Wilco, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. We've loved, um, and I love the fact that that it's motorsport and the motorsport fans who have probably held you closer than the other sports have over the journey. And even though it was a, you know, not as long a period as your period with tennis and Olympics and other stuff. Um, you and motorsport broadcasting in this country are forever intertwined and uh, it's been a thrill to have a chat to you about it today. I've loved it and even the people that sometimes, uh, not today so much, but used to drive past and hang out the window of the car and yell out, Hey, Wilco, you mug! That's all right. I don't mind that. that hey, was, they were watching. They, they were, were watching. watching and they remembered. <laughs> Thank you, mate. Well, there you have it. My huge thanks to Wilco for his time and indeed also to his wife, Kerry. It was great to spend some time and stop in for a chat with them as part of my recent week-long podcast tour. It may have been 25 years since Wilco last did Bathurst for Channel 7. For motorsport fans, you don't forget, and the response from you all, our podcast listeners, readers of the website, fans of the sport to part one of this pod very recently was proof of that. Well, next time on the V8 Sleuth Podcast, polished by Bowden's own premium car care, it's a very special Sandown 500 episode. Will Dale and I will take a look at the history of some of the amazing events and goings-on in Melbourne's Motorsport Classic. In the meantime, go back through the back catalogue, catch up on any episodes you might have missed along the way, and we'll be back next week with another episode of the V8 Sleuth Podcast, polished by Bowden's own premium car care. I'll chat with you then. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out.